All right. Um, we've been looking at the, un well, a series, I guess we'll call it a series, Exploring the Unseen World. That's what I've titled it in my notes when I keep my records, uh, part seven today. So uh, this is where we're headed, where we have been, and talking about that great unseen realm that God has created that we have no ability to see into because of our material limitations here in this, this physical world. And so we've been exploring that, and it really has been beneficial in giving us a greater picture of what the condition of our world is and what God is doing to bring it to order, to fulfill what he's told us in the book of Revelation that he would do. I've mentioned on several occasions the fact that God created Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden. Uh, the scripture also uses the word mountain. We don't often think about that to describe Eden uh, as the place where he put man and told him to multiply and replenish the earth. And in other words, to spread Eden out and fill the earth. And of course, we know the utter failure that took place and even the things that have happened since then with Genesis chapter six. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We're gonna look at it a little bit again today. But ultimately, God is going to bring Eden back to this earth and he will fulfill everything that he promised he would do and what he designed for us to do for us because it's his desire, his ultimate purpose to fellowship with us and he made us for that reason and he's going to do it. For man to stand in rebellion against that, it's going to have some awesome and awful consequences and we don't wanna be a part of that. So the building of the Tower of Babel was clearly, as we saw last week, an act of rebellion on the part of man. He determined that he was going to reach the heavens. And we made the statement that he, the purpose of building the tower was to, and it was, this was common, other, there's no record or no archeological finds of the Tower of Babel, but other towers have been found in other cities around the area of Mesopotamia. And it was common for them to build a tower seeking to reach heaven with the ultimate desire to bring God or the gods down to that mountaintop where they could worship and fellowship with those gods. And of course, in the process, forsaking Yahweh and turning from him. It was never God's design to do that. And so consequently, Yahweh, it says, came down, confused their language, determined that he would separate them and disperse them and prevent them from being able to do this by confusing their languages, giving each nation that he created by dispersing them a unique language. And Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 tells us even that he even fixed the borders of these nations. And one of the reasons I was a little late getting in here, I was late trying to create a map 
I'm a very visual person, so this helped me, but the ladies said, that's very confusing, and so I, I disbanded that, and we're gonna try to fix it for maybe next week, we'll be able to get that worked out and make it look a little better. Um, it's hard finding some of the things on the internet that want to do, you know, fit me to what I want, and um, anyway, this one didn't work out so hot. So, nonetheless, nonetheless, God dispersed the nations, and he spread them out over a particular area, which is what the map was about, and I gave you one map, and so you can look at that and see this area uh, in the God's established for these nations to exist in and participate in. Now, um, in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, verses eight and nine, we saw the reading there that it says, uh, in most English Bibles, it says there that he divided them up according to the children of Israel. But there are other readings and other translations that say, according to the sons of God, which I think is the correct reading for the simple reason and a very easy one, that Israel was not in existence at this time. As a matter of fact, if you look at the table of nations, you don't see Israel's name mentioned. You don't see Judea. You don't see anything regarding uh, other than the land of Canaan, but you don't see the name Israel. That doesn't even begin. Israel doesn't even come about until about over 400 years later. It starts in the next chapter of Genesis 12 with the calling of Abraham, and we see the remnant beginnings, but we do not see the nation established for some 400 plus years following this Tower of Babel event. So what is going on here then? Moses was singing a song, as we noted in chapter 32, in order to teach the people concerning what had happened and what they were going to face when they went into the land of Canaan. And they were to be prepared to meet up with these various gods that were over these nations or, and even over these cities and so forth. And um, well, can't get beyond that idea that he sang a song in order to teach something of such massive importance that we need to know about and that he wanted his people to know about. And he told him there in verse 7, he says, in days of old, the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. So he didn't only divide them by confusing their languages, but he also, as we said, fixed the borders there according to the number of the sons of God. Now, by dividing up these nations, and he based them on the number of the sons of God. And a question might arise then in your mind, and it did to me, was, well, how many gods were there? How many did he divide up? Well, we know that in, in Genesis 10, there were 70 nations mentioned in the, in the table there. And there are many who believe, and I think it's very valid, that there were 70 gods then that he assigned over those 70 nations. 
Now, whether that be so or not, but if you trace out the number 70 in scripture, you see it very frequently. As a matter of fact, you remember how many children of Jacob went down to Egypt? Was it not 70? And some feel that that was nothing but a picture of God stating that he was going to reclaim those 70 nations through those 70. Now, whether there is, you know, what that symbolism ultimately means and how deep you can go with that, I don't know. But I do think there's something to this number. And a matter of fact, we may explore that deeper at a later time. So the point of it all is, is that there has been a big change has come over the earth. Prior to this time, God has dealt with the whole, the world as a whole. He dealt with mankind corporately, everybody on the earth. Now, all of a sudden, they've been dispersed and divided up. There are these 70 different languages of these nations that are spread out over the known world of that time. And God is now dealing on a different basis. And that's where we're headed this morning to see, well, just what is it that God is doing then? Well, we already mentioned that in the very next chapter here, in chapter 12, God calls out a man from among these 70 nations, a man by the name of Abraham, in order to establish, as it were, a foothold. And we mentioned this last week, that he claimed the land of Canaan for himself. This little teeny little piece of real estate in the midst of all those 70 nations that he was going to use to begin spreading out and reclaiming those nations. Now, of course, a lot of history has taken place in the scriptures since that time. And uh, I made a note here, looking at our map. Well, we're not gonna look at our map uh, this morning because we're going to put that off for a later time. Um, what more is there in scripture that talks about this very thing, these 70 gods that we're talking about that he placed over these nations? Well, I want us to turn to Deuteronomy chapter four. And actually in Deuteronomy, God speaks about these on several occasions. And the reason he does so, you might remember, is because the nation of Israel, this wilderness generation is standing on the shores of the Jordan River, getting ready to go over into the promised land. And Moses is making his uh, final proclamation to them in Deuteronomy. That's why we call it the second law. And he reiterates all these things that they're to be aware of and to know regarding their relationship to Yahweh. And he warns them repeatedly about these foreign gods. Don't you mix up with them. Don't you fall into error in worshiping them. Don't let your heart be led astray. In chapter four, look at verses 18 and 19. Now we're just kind of jumping in there. Actually, if you look at verse 15, he says, take careful heed to yourselves for you saw no form. Take special attention to that. You saw no form 
when Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image. So do you see the distinction Yahweh's making? I did not reveal any form to you when I revealed myself to you. So therefore, when you worship me, don't you make any carved image, not in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. Verse 18, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth, and take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Don't do it, he says. If you are driven, compelled, you feel so strongly urged to look up to heaven and to worship these gods, this host of heaven, beware you don't do that because I did not reveal to you, myself to you in any form. Now, there's more. But one of the things I want us to take note of here is notice that word given. We're gonna see that again. God has given to all the peoples, he says, under the whole heaven as a heritage. You know, that's the same kind of language we saw over in chapter 32 where he said that I have given them their inheritance, the nations. But we're going to see that again, and we will see more. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. He says there, in, beginning in verse 2, If there is found among you within any of your towns that, the, that Yahweh your Elohim is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your Elohim in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods, that is, other Elohim, and worshiped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Wow, what a sentence for falling victim to turning away from Yahweh to worship one of the host of heaven. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Just a few more pages over. Deuteronomy chapter 29. And I'm, of course, not reading from the King James here. This is a long section here, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 29. What I want us to note here 
in verse 14, he says, I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands with us today before Yahweh our Elohim, as well as with him who is not here today. So it was for the future generation as well, the future generations that would come. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by. And that's important to note. You came through these nations. You didn't affiliate with them. And you saw their abominations, those detestable things that the nations were practicing at this time. And you saw their idols which were among them and so on, wood and stone, silver and gold, so that, he says, that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart, catch it, this is where it begins, in the heart, whose heart turns away from Yahweh, our Elohim. Now, we mentioned earlier that over 300 times in this book, you see that phrase, Yahweh, your Elohim. God is just emphatically stating to the people of Israel, I am your Elohim. I am Yahweh. I am distinct from all other Elohim. And we've covered the territory on who the Elohim are in the heavens. These disembodied beings that live in the unseen realm. And he says, lest your heart turns, he says, to go and serve the gods of these nations and that there may not be among you a root-bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart. I just catch that word again, heart, saying, now watch this here. This is so important. Saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. Now the ESV says, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now what's he telling us? Well, he's telling us this is exactly where a great many believers are today. They want to worship God. They want to believe in God. They want to believe in Yahweh, but they want to do it the way they want to do it. They want to do it on their own terms. I'll worship God in my own way. Believe me, I have talked to people who have told me that very thing. God is telling us here, you don't do it the way you want to do it. You do it my way or else. And that's what we better grab a hold of here. The truth of what he is expressing to us regarding our relationship to him. That if we're going to say that I'm a Christian, if we're going to say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, if we are going to say that I have taken up my cross and I'm gonna follow him, then you better be careful that you do it his way and don't choose your own. Now, 
at the end of that verse, in the ESV, it says, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. I'm going to read to you what the New King James says, because I think they grabbed the idea better than any, any other translation I saw. He says here, don't, don't say I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Now that's sobering right there. When you go to a, a family affair and one of your relatives comes in who's a drunkard, it just ruins the whole thing, doesn't it? It spoils the whole affair. God is really telling us the same thing here. You ruin the moist and the dry alike. You don't mix what's moist and what's dry together because the dry won't be dry anymore. And the moist may not be moist anymore. And you bring the drunkard and the, and the sober together, you've ruined it. And he's simply telling us, if you think that you're going to worship me your own way, if you're going to follow the dictates of your own heart and you want to come into a fellowship of believers who are seeking to obediently follow the Lord, then you just aren't going to fit in and you're not going to feel welcome and you won't last long. You'll probably end up leaving. And I've seen more than one folk leave here. And as I said, I have had people tell me, I believe in God, but I've got my own way of doing it. And sadly, they're going to find out, just like this person here, what happens when you read the next verse. Look at verse 20. He says, Yahweh would not spare him, for then the anger of Yahweh and his jealousy would burn against that man. The, the ESV says smoke. I love that. He'll smoke against that man. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. Wow. Have you gone through Deuteronomy? Have you read the curses? Have you read the blessing and the cursing passages? The curses aren't very pleasant. And he says, and Yahweh would blot out his name from under heaven. That simply means he's going to be removed from the covenant and he would not enjoy the blessings that God has promised through his covenant with Israel. Verse 21, and Yahweh would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity. Now, do you see, do you remember why? Why was he mixing this up? Because in verse 18, he says, and you want to go and serve the gods, the Elohim of these nations. You see, you can't mix those with Yahweh. You can't practice your worship the way you want to do it. And then you come, if you come down, we're going to skip some and come down to uh, verse 24. And he's talking about what happens 
when God brings all this judgment on the nation of Israel for turning against Yahweh and the fire and the brimstone and all these things that would happen. And in verse 24, he says, all the nations would say, well, why has Yahweh done this to this land? And what does the heat of this great anger mean? In verse 25, then people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now watch again, verse 26. For they went and served other gods, other Elohim, and worshiped them. Elohim that they did not know and that he had not, and there's our word, had not given them. It's the same word that he uses when he says he allotted these gods to the nations when he divided them at the Tower of Babel. It's the same word. The point of it being is God has assigned to these nations. I'm just repeating it again because he repeated it to Israel over and over and over. Do not worship these gods. And of course, we know exactly what they did. And that's exactly what they fell into. And he told them they would. He told them, this is what's gonna to happen to you in coming days, and you're going to cave in. <clears throat> and so what happens? Well, the idea here, and I hope from all of this, is this picture becomes clear in your mind as to what God is doing in assigning these gods to these nations and then carving out this little plot of land in the nation of Israel. And we read several passages last week where God said, I have claimed Jacob as my portion. I may have given those gods to these 70 nations, but Jacob, you're mine. Israel, you belong to me. What happens then? We see a failure on the part of Israel and they go off and worship those gods. And as a result, there has been nothing but spiritual warfare going on between those nations and Yahweh ever since. And it continues on to this very day. Now with the coming of the Lord Jesus, that spiritual warfare has come to individuals like you and I. And that's why Paul tells us that we are to clothe ourselves with that armor that we might be prepared for the warfare that we are going to engage when we go out into the nations to deliver the gospel, the good news to them. You know, over in Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, he says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the springs of life. But it was their heart that caused them to give in and to fail. 
And that's why we are to keep it with all diligence. Now, when Yahweh allotted to these nations, these gods who were to rule over them, there's nothing in scripture that says that these were evil gods. He simply chose 70 Elohim to place them over these nations. And their responsibility was to rule over them. Somewhere along the line, they failed. And that's why we have this spiritual warfare with them today. What happened? Where did the failure occur? Well, we looked at that earlier. So we're gonna go back and revisit it. Turn to Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, I think God has given us here a picture of exactly what he's referring to. When he talks about verse one that we looked at where it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods or he judges among the Elohim. Why does he do that? Why is he standing in the midst of his council to judge these Elohim? Well, he tells us in the next verse. He says, how long will you judge unjustly? That is, how will you long are you going to practice perverted judgment and show partiality to the wicked? This is what they were being judged for. Their failure to administer justice that God had assigned to them when he placed them over the these 70 nations. And in their failure, he called them to account. And that's why he's standing in this council here to render judgment against them for their failure. Now we saw earlier, and we've looked at these verses before, what were they supposed to be doing? How were they supposed to be rendering justice according to things that would be approved by Yahweh, that would please him? And he tells them in verses three and four. Notice that he says, defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, and free them from the hand of the wicked. And it just amazes me the simplicity with which God brought judgment against them over failure and things that we just tend to overlook ourselves. And we look at the poor and the needy and the orphans and the widows and we just pass them on by and we fail, excuse me, we fail to meet their needs. But you see, as God's imagers, which he created us to be all the way back in Genesis chapter one and verse 26 is the responsibility that he's given us. We are to act on his behalf as his imagers and to do the things that are pleasing and honorable to him. The things that are principles that he judges by. And that's what we should be doing. And so these gods in the chapter or Psalm 82 were brought to account over this failure and over this very thing 
Now you may say, well, how do you know that's what he's talking about? Well, if you look back at the things that we've been studying, what other thing in the history of the scriptures here is there where this failure occurred? Where is the one that Moses points out over and over in Deuteronomy to his own people as they're getting ready to enter into the land? It's beware of these Elohim. Beware of these wicked, rebellious gods over these nations who have fallen victim to worshiping them. And quite frankly, we see, we're going to see later, are in bondage to them and wanting to be freed from them. And that's one of the things he mentions here in Psalm 82, to free them from the hand of the wicked. But they failed in that because they're in bondage themselves. So the next question that arises, because they're in bondage, what is God doing to reclaim these nations? What is he doing to bring them back under his authority and under his rule? Well, that's where we're going to jump ahead all the way to Acts chapter 1. And we're, we're obviously bypassing a lot of territory in Scripture, but I've only got about seven or eight minutes to go, and we can't do that. So we're going to jump all the way to Acts chapter 1. And let's catch the context, the scene of what's going on here. We're bypassing the Gospels. We know what's taken place there. The Lord Jesus has come. God has sent his son in flesh. Wish we could stop and dwell on that for a while. But we know that he was crucified. He was rejected. He was put in a grave. He was brought forth, resurrected, raised up. And ultimately, here in chapter 1 of Acts, he ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. The disciples met in this upper room and he told them, I want you to wait until the promise of the Father comes, which was the Holy Spirit. And so they waited until Pentecost. We come to chapter two of, Pente of, of Acts. And it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And we know the story how this sound of a rushing wind came and the cloven tongues of fire. And verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now watch. And there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. This was no ordinary crowd that had come to observe Pentecost. Devout Jews from every nation under heaven and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. 
Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it then that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? How, how can this be? All of these disciples, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, began to speak in, in languages that these Jews from these visiting nations could speak. And they understood what they were telling them. And then he names all of these nations. Verse 9, he says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs or, or, or Arabians, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. What do you think those wonderful works were? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, but his ascension also into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father. Why do you think that Luke took so much time to write down all of these different nations? Well, it's because if you look at the table of nations, which by the way, that's what my little map was all about, and it, 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 I admit it's a little confusing to look at it. But if you look at the various nations mentioned in, in, in Genesis chapter 10, and then you look at the nations mentioned here in Acts chapter 2, you will see basically an overlay of these nations. Yes, there are different names here, but we're talking almost 1,500 years later. Names have changed. In other places, he groups them together. So for instance, in the table of nations back in Genesis 10, when he's talking about North Africa, he talks about the Lahabim, the Ludim, and Put, and Cyrene. But here in Acts chapter two, he just says Libya. Well, that's, that's the area of North Africa that covers all of these ones mentioned back in Genesis chapter 10. Now, why? Why is that important? What significance does that mean then for you and I today? Simply this, that these, well, by the way, if you go on over to Acts in, in the rest of the book of Acts, excuse me, of chapter two, we, the next thing we find is Peter begins in answering uh, the question about how they could hear everyone speaking in their own language. And he said, you know, they thought they were drunk. Peter says, wait a minute, no, that's not the case. And he goes on to preach to them. And he announces to them the main message of this message from Peter is the resurrection of Christ. He, a matter of fact, he mentions it four times specifically and alludes to it several other times. 
the message that they preached to these visiting people from these other nations was that God had sent his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He says, a man approved or attested by God by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, they wanted them to know this Jesus from Nazareth, he's the real deal. God sent him. And not only was he crucified and buried, but God raised him from the dead and ascended. he ascended to the right hand of God. There's victory. There's power over death. And not only that, there's freedom from those gods over those nations that you have come from. God has brought deliverance, redemption in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so they go on to tell them this message. Over in verse 32 of Acts chapter two, he says, this Jesus God has raised up of which we, we, that is, we 120 here, are all witnesses. We've seen him. He actually came up from the dead. We saw him with our own eyes. We witnessed it. And not only that, he says, therefore, in verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which we saw earlier, he told them to wait for the promise. Now they've got it. He poured out this which you now see and hear. Verse 34. For David, he said, did not ascend into the heavens. He's still in the grave. But he says himself, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What enemies is he talking about? He's talking about the enemies of those nations around them and the gods who ruled over them. I don't know what happened here. That doesn't help them. That's what David is talking about here when he quotes from this psalm. Till I make your enemies your footstool. How is he going to do that? Through the resurrection of his own son. Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins 
And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit too, just like we did. You'll get the Holy Spirit. So what do you think they did when they went back to their nations? When Pentecost, when the festival was over and they went back to their nations, what message do you think they carried back with them? What did they preach to their fellow Jews? Well, the same, the same message that Peter just preached. Did you know, guys, that through Jesus Christ, he has defeated these gods under your nation? And you don't have to live in bondage anymore? All you have to do is receive God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and accept him, and he will set you free. And that, my dear friends, is why we must be about the business of missions and taking the gospel to every nation, not just ours. We are one of those nations, by the way. We're not mentioned in Scripture But we are one of those nations. And our people need the gospel as well. But nations around the world need the gospel. They need to know that there is freedom in Jesus Christ. And God is going to continue this until he comes back. Until his son returns. And then he will judge the world. He will destroy. You remember what he said back in Psalm 82 when he judged those gods? He says, you may be Elohim, but you're going to die like men. What an awful judgment for them. And then the psalmist ends there. I love it. He says, oh God. I'm just paraphrasing now, but he's saying, come and claim those nations. Come back and rule this world and take it for yourself. And God is doing that today. God is doing that when missionaries go out and proclaim all around the world. He's doing that when we share the gospel with our neighbors. And he is going to come back, and Scripture says he will rule this world with a rod of iron. And those gods will not rule anymore. And they will have no part nor parcel in God's new Eden when he comes to reclaim it and establish it. Well, I'll tell you what. I was excited last week. I'm just as excited this week. I want to see it happen. I want to see the Lord come back. I want to see the Lord accomplish these things, and I know he will, but I, I want to be a part of it. I don't want to be sitting on a bench somewhere or rocking in my chair on my front porch and just let it all pass by, getting mingled up in the affairs of this world. I want to be about God's business, and I want to see our church about God's business as well. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful glory of knowing that our Savior is seated in heaven at your right hand. 
that you have approved of him, that he is there awaiting that day to return to this earth and not only claim the nations, but claim us for his own. And I pray, Father, that we would let that reality sink into our hearts every day, that we would guard our hearts and protect them and not let them go astray so that we might receive that well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Oh, how we long to see that joy. We pray in Jesus' name.